Welcome back to your listeners. This is Charlotte Creative and Technical Director at Evidence for Faith. We are in the fourth lesson of our 11-part series titled Science in the Bible. In this section, Michael will be talking about meteorology. You can find the video version of this lesson, the PowerPoint, worksheet, and other resources at our website, evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. You can also directly support this broadcast and help us keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael Lane in meteorology. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Michael Lane, your host here, and we're doing a series called Science in the Bible. And in this series, what we're showing is that science and the Bible are not in conflict with each other, as a lot of people think and a lot of people preach. It's not. Actually, like Louis Pasteur said, science should be pointing us directly to God. And if you really study science, true science, you will see if you study that in the Bible, it does indeed point us to this master creator, this master designer that's out there. And uh, as we explore this, this series, this lesson here is on meteorology in the Bible. Now you might be wondering, meteorology? Weather science? Yes, weather science in the Bible. There is a tremendous amount of information here in the Bible on meteorology, and it's not in conflict. Now, it was in conflict for a while. Uh, science in the Bible did not agree a lot on meteorology. And what ends up happening, as often does, as science learns more, they start coming around and saying, you know something, the Bible was really right on all this. And so we're gonna talk about a few things. Now, remember, th there's not a lot of science in the Bible. People have come up to me and they've tried to, I think at times, trying to get in an argument with me by saying, you know, the Bible's not a science textbook. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. What do you mean I'm correct? You're absolutely correct. It's not a science textbook, but it's given to us because I believe this is God-inspired, God-breathed out. And if God did this, God is perfect, he is holy, and anything that he says he cannot lie, anything that he gives us is going to be the truth. Thus, if he gives us a little uh, niblet of science in the Bible, it's going to be true. Now, science over time has disagreed many times with the Bible, but science usually comes back around and sees, wow, the Bible was correct on this. And that's what we're gonna see in this lesson as we're doing this whole series. In this one, with meteorology, we're gonna see some fascinating things because this series is to show that true science true science that is observable, that is testable, not based upon opinions and, and theories that can't be tested. The Bible doesn't have any science errors in it. It just doesn't. I've given many colleagues that challenge, and when they think they have found one, they give it back to me, and they come back, and then I explain to them and show them from the original manuscripts, and they're like, oh, I guess the Bible is, is right there. And that's what usually happens. So it shouldn't be at odds with people. Um, but some people just re refuse to see it. It's, a, it's like a saying my dad used to say. Some people are like owls. The more light you shine on them, the less they see. And some people are like that, unfortunately. But as we're going to see, science fits with the Bible in meteorology in an amazing way. This is 
just absolutely fascinating because one of the, the most um, uh, uh, important concepts of meteorology, actually of science in general, um, is in the science of meteorology and the Bible talks a lot about it. And the Bible is absolutely correct all the time. So getting ahead of myself, let's get to the first one here. Um, now, as I said, this lesson is gonna deal with meteorology and we're gonna take a look and see what did science say and then what does the bible say and you're going to be amazed if you've never studied this this is absolutely just fascinating stuff how this all works out so first of all we'll start off with this one air currents now if you turn on the news at nighttime and you start watching the news and stuff like that any weather forecast you're going to see on a local forecast they're going to tell you which way the winds are blowing um, if you've ever lived in the tropics, I used to live in the tropics in the Bahamas. We used to watch things like air currents and stuff. Um, but if you see air currents, no matter where you live here, like in North America or even anywhere in the world, you'll notice that that air moves in certain patterns. Um, around a low pressure system, it moves, the air currents move counterclockwise. A high pressure system, they move clockwise. If you remember those two facts, you can also you can often tell a little bit what your weather's gonna be like. Um, make your own little forecasts and stuff. But you know that scientists couldn't predict how, weather, uh, how air currents, weather patterns, and stuff like this moved? They actually thought, they actually thought that weather just, and winds just happened, air currents, at random. Like it would blow here, and then it'd stop blowing there. And then it'd blow over this direction, and then it would just stop. They had no idea for a long time. It, it puzzled people for so long about air currents. They thought they just happened randomly uh, around the Earth. And, well, that's not exactly as we know today. Like I say, turn on the weather forecast, watch the news tonight, and just look at the way that they, they have the high-pressure systems, the low-pressure systems. Um, you have the jet streams and stuff. These air currents determine our weather. And the thing is, they're not random. They're all set in patterns. Now, the first person who came up with an idea that it's not done randomly is what everything in science was teaching, that air currents are just random. No, it was a guy that I'm sure most of you have heard of, and it's Galileo, the great Italian Galileo. And he was a devoted man. If you don't know this, he was a devoted man of Holy Scripture. True, he had a lot of conflicts with the Catholic Church over uh, some uh, theories of having to do with astronomy, which we will get to in another lesson in another time. We're going to do a whole thing just on astronomy. But he had problems with the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was sort of stretching some things, some ideas that were in um, actually not in the Bible, and they were sort of stretching it. And he disagreed because this guy, Galileo, knew his Bible. Um, you can tell that if you study his writings and stuff, uh, study the guy's history and things, you will see that this guy had a good knowledge, working knowledge of the Bible, and he believed it. And so his, he, he had more than an average knowledge of biblical scripture. We often associate Galileo like he invented the telescope and he spent a lot of time looking up into space, but he also had a very good understanding of physics and falling bodies. And he also had, from his writings, we can tell he had some ideas about air currents. It was obvious that he did not believe that air currents happened at random. No, that there was a pattern to them. And he didn't spend a lot of time on this, but he did give us some indication of where he was thinking that air uh, does not happen randomly as what was being taught in science of his day. He said there had to be a force causing this because he was so into physics, he understood this. There's something doing it, it is not random. But he didn't spend a lot of time on this. Um, no, so other scientists started coming along and started working upon this idea too here, having to do with this. And when you get uh, into the 1800s, this is AD of course, in the 1800s, there were many scientists now specifically working on meteorology. Um, one 
was a United States naval captain. His name was Matthew Morey. Uh, Matthew Morey, um, we'll hear about him later on when we study oceanography and marine biology because he had a lot to do with that. But Matthew Murray, captain, if you will, uh, Captain Murray, he had a very, very good knowledge of the Bible. Very strong Christian, not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He studied his Bible in great detail. He was a person who studied scripture carefully. He just didn't read the Bible. He studied it. He asked questions um, um, of himself and asked God to explain passages to him. And this guy, living in the mid-1800s, came up with a lot of information about air currents um, on, the, on the world, on the earth. And the thing is, some of this he took directly out of the Bible. He gained a lot of his, his ideas strictly from studying the Bible. Isn't that amazing? That people could do science, find answers in science by studying the Word of God. Wow, you don't find many scientists today that say that, though there are quite a few thousand still. But anyway, let's move back further in time. Let's go back to about 950 BC. There was a guy by the name of King Solomon. I'm sure you've heard of him. King Solomon wrote um, that, that air currents didn't move at random. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 6, this is out of the English Standard Version, um, he writes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. You notice he uses the word circuits. Now, this is talking about a set pattern, a set course. That's what a circuit is. In other words, he's saying the winds are moving, blowing around on a set pattern is what this is specifically talking about. God is telling us science was wrong. It's not random. It's on certain patterns. That's what we're seeing. It's not random. It's a specific order. God is not a God of, of random. He really, really has plans for everything, and, and nature works according to these plans. So now we know this. All weather forecasts in the northern hemisphere show these wind directions, as I said, moving counterclockwise around a low-pressure system, and they use they go clockwise around a high-pressure system. We know this, and you can tell what which way by watching the air pressure, which way the winds are going to be blowing. You can figure this out very easily. Another aspect that we see is that air has weight. I have a little experiment here that we're going to do having to do with air has weight. Since we're talking about air has weight in this, in this part of the lesson now on um, meteorology, I, I got to tell you a little story. I was teaching back years ago for um, elementary school. Yes, I used to teach elementary school too. And in my first, I had some first graders and second graders that I used to teach science to. And as I was teaching them one day, I, I told them, I said, as we were talking about air and weight and, and weather and stuff, weather science, like, ooh, look, cloud. Um, we were having some fun there. And then I told them that uh, air has weight. And they're like, huh? And I said, yeah, air has weight. I had a beaker sitting on my table. And I said, what's in the beaker? Well, they're first graders and second graders. They're like, nothing. No, 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 no. There is something in there. And they're looking. I don't see anything. There's air in there. Oh. And, you know, they sort of grasped that one pretty quick. But the problem came when I said, you know, I was trying to tell them that there's weight to the air in there. And they're like, no, it doesn't. That doesn't weigh anything. I said, yes, it does. There's, there's air in there, and air is made up of, of things. And, you know, it's just there, there is a substance there. They don't understand molecules and atoms and stuff too, too much in first grade. But I said there is stuff in here, and it's called air, and it has weight. And I could not get them to believe me. Now, this has happened to me many times in teaching when I used to teach elementary school year after year. I had students that always struggled with this. Well, one time as I was trying to explain this, uh, and they, were, they wouldn't believe me, they couldn't believe that air has weight, I said, 
I'm going to prove it to you. Let me show you something. And so what I did, I said, just watch. And so I took out of the desk drawer that I had two identical balloons out of the same bag. It's not like mixed size bags. It was just a bag of one size balloons, like what you would buy at the dollar store or something. Pulled out two. And I said, these look identical, right? And they said, yeah, they look the same. Very good. I set them down. I took out a ball of string, which also I had at my desk. And I cut some pieces of string. And I made them all the exact same length. And they could see as I spread them out. They're all the same, exactly the same, right? And they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I came from the same spool. They understood that. Then I took a meter stick. And, well, in this case, I set up an apparatus like this. I took the meter stick that I had in the room. And I took one of the strings and tied it to it. And I suspended it from the ceiling. Well, we're in a sound studio right now, so I can't really do that. But we've, I've just put together a quick little apparatus here to show you what I showed these first graders. And they caught this. This apparatus is, now what I have here is just a piece of plastic. This is a, a plastic rod, and you'll notice that I've got string tied to it, and I've even got a little piece of tape there making sure that the string doesn't move around. And then I have taken two um, paper clips, identical paper clips. It's very important if you try this at home, it's really simple. Make sure you get two identical paper clips that we have here. Then I took the other two pieces of string we still had left, and I tied it to the paper clips. And I said, they're both the same, right? Yeah. Then I tied the balloons to each one of the paper clips. Now, with the string suspended in, uh, suspending the stick in the center, I got this uh, measured at the exact same distance from each end. And I set up like the apparatus you're looking at right now. And I said, what do you notice? And they said, it's balanced. It's the same on one side as the other. Very good. You get a gold star. And so, yeah, they, they caught that there's no difference here. So what's here and what's here weighs the same. We had balances in the room that we've been using for things in the past. So they caught this pretty quick. And I said, now I'm going to show you that air has weight. And they're like, how? I said, well, if I push on this, it's going to go down a little bit. If I push up on it, it's going to go up. But it will come back because it's the same weight, right? And they said, yeah, yeah, we catch that. I said, watch this. So I went over and I grabbed one end of the apparatus and I untied the balloon. And I untied the balloon. And now you can see it's a little different here, but we're just gonna let this sit. And what I'm gonna do is I said, I'm gonna blow this balloon up. What am I putting in here? Air, very good. So we start to blow this up now. And there's gonna be a lot of air going in here because this guy has a lot of hot air. Lame joke. Notice I'm not talking when I'm blowing. And we're going to get this blown up. And as I was doing with the kids, I said, so what am I doing? You're putting air in the balloon. Very good. You're catching it. But I'm not doing it in the other one, right? No. So the only difference is this one has air and that one doesn't. They all caught it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to twist this a little bit to, and reattach it to this paper clip. I have the paper clips marked, uh, the rod marked on the back where the paper clip goes to make sure that it's nice and balanced. So I won't have a problem in trying to get it that way, hopefully. And now I'm just going to try and tie this balloon on here. Just a quick little slip knot will do it. And there we go, nice and tight. Now I'm going to put this back. I have a mark on the back that told me right where it was at before. That one has not moved. So now, whoop. Balloon's trying to get away. Some things are just camera shy. 
So we'll put this back on here at the same spot. That has not moved. That has not moved. And now it's balanced like right now if I do this. But I said, now what's going to happen if I take my finger away? And they're like, it's going to weigh the same. I said, really? You think so? So what we're going to do is now the only difference, I said, what, what's the only difference between these? And they said, the only difference is this one has air, that one doesn't. And I said, if it has air, that means it's going to weigh more, meaning it's going to go down, right? And I took my hand away. And they were like, oh my gosh, magic. It's magic. I said, no, it's not magic. Um, this is science. And what this is, this is showing that, that air has weight. And believe it or not, they caught it. They got it really quick that, wow, the difference in here is you put air in there. Air made the thing go down, so air does have weight. They all caught it when we gave them an evaluation on this. They all understood this. They, they grasped it really quick. So then they started using this year after year in school because this is a great illustration to prove that air has weight. Now, if you wanted to do this at home, you could have a little fun making a little apparatus like I did. I just took some scrap pieces of lumber and some nails here. Um, and you can use a meter stick or a yardstick, that's fine. But another way, if you have a balance, I know some people do have balances for cooking and stuff. If you have a really good balance, goes to like a hundredth of a gram, try it. Put a balloon on the balance, weigh it, then take the balloon off, blow it up, tie it in a knot, set it back on there. You're gonna see it's gonna weigh more. Okay, what we just saw on this experiment is just absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It's just air has weight. You see, science is not in conflict with the Bible. Just like we saw with the air currents, science disagreed with what the Bible said, but then science comes along and catches up with the Bible. And in this case here, we're seeing this, that air does have weight, but now, how was that discovered? And what does the Bible say about that? This is so cool. So, the first person that we are aware of that started thinking that air has weight was a, a scientist, a Dutch theologian actually, a theologian, a Bible expert, a Dutch theologian um, who was a contemporary, he lived at the same time of Galileo, um, but he's Dutch. Uh, Isaac Beekman was his name, and he is the guy who first, as far as we know of, that first started putting things together. Now, the thing is, remember, he's a theologian. So he's a guy studying the word of God. And they, they used to say, science used to say that air didn't have weight, but he's like, you know, air is made of something, it's gotta have a weight to it. So he's going against what science was saying. Science is telling us air doesn't have weight, but he is saying, no, air does have weight. And I can't help but wonder if he didn't catch some of the Bible verses on this, um, one in particular. But as we, we move on, as they, scientists start to, to change their mode of thinking that air didn't have weight and now air has weight, we come to the next person, Evangelista Torricelli. Uh, he was a student of Galileo, living at the same time, obviously. Actually, he came right after, but he did study for a while under Galileo. And he actually published a paper um, about air as being a real substance. Now this was contrary to the laws of science. This was contrary to everything that science was saying at this time. He is saying air actually is a substance and because it's a substance, it's made of something, it has weight. So that was a rocker to the scientific community. But it was Robert Boyle, you might have heard of him, one of the most brilliant scientists who ever lived, also one of the greatest theologians of his time. This man was a Christian. 
He studied the Word of God carefully. And he was not just a scientist and a theologian, he was an apologist. What I mean by that, he's not apologizing for anything. What he's doing, apologist is somebody who defends something, and in this case, defending the Bible. Evidence for Faith is an apologetic ministry. We're defending the Bible, that's what we're doing. We're following the footsteps of Robert Boyle. Robert Boyle was a, an apologist who tried to show people that the Bible is accurate. It's not a mythical book or whatever. So he invents, actually invented a device for weighing air. And we still use these to this day, barometers. Um, maybe you have one in your home. Some people have them. Uh, most schools have them in their science labs. I had one in, in just about every lab I ever worked in. There was always a barometer so we could watch how much the air weighed and how it varied. Um, living in the tropics, you watch very carefully during hurricane season barometers and because it tells you when possibly a hurricane or a tropical storm is coming. But did you know that these Christian guys, I can't help but wonder if they didn't catch some of this because of what's in the Bible. The Bible actually states what was contrary to science, that air has weight. In the book of Job, one of the oldest books in the entire Bible, probably the oldest book, Job chapter 28, verse 25, and it says this, when he, talking about God, gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. But it actually says the wind has weight. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Now, some I've, I've talked about this and I've taught this lesson and some people say, oh, Michael, uh, that word weight there, that's not talking about like something like that. You know, maybe it's like a weighted question or something or, you know, it's, it's, it's a different type of weight. No, go back to the original language. Go back to the ancient Hebrew. You'll see the word for weight here is the word mishkal. Mishkal means to literally put something on a balance like they did in ancient days to measure out food products and, and other things and metals and things. They balanced, used a balance to do that. That's the same word. So it's talking about air can be weighed like on a balance. That's what this is saying. So we see again, science disagreed with the Bible, but science comes along back and finally catches up with what the Bible is saying. How much easier life would be if we just kept accepting the word of God, huh? Well, that brings me to the third and the final um, part of this lesson in meteorology. And this arguably is, is where you're going to find more evidence of a scientific objective than any other place. And it's in meteorology. The Bible contains so much on what we call the hydrologic cycle, or we commonly call it the water cycle. The Bible is full of information on this. And matter of fact, when I used to teach middle school, for a couple of years, I taught middle school um, and I did physical science and I did earth science. And in my earth science one time, now this was with a Christian school, um, I said, we're gonna do something different this year as we study the hydrologic cycle. I said, I want you to put your books away and get your Bibles out. And I'm gonna teach this system, uh, this, this objective, this, this whole hydrologic cycle, just using verses in the Bible. And they're like, what? I said, it's all in there just follow me. And I'm going to take you through this. This is just absolutely amazing. Now, to begin with, as I get a drink of water, talking about the water cycles made me thirsty. Mm. Oh, good water. Anyway, by the way, that's well water. So that came out of the earth. Do you know that they used to think, science used to teach that there, that water under the earth was in, um, an inexhaustible water supply, that water was just under the earth and we could never ever get 
get rid of it. It would just always be there. But science was also confused about something else. They were puzzled. Scientists were puzzled for the longest time, watching snow or rain come down and land on the pavement. And then after a little while, the sun comes out and starts shining, and it seems like the water disappeared. I could just imagine somebody walking in class to Oxford back centuries ago and walk in there during a rainstorm and afterwards go out to lunch and the rain has stopped and on the way back there's puddles and stuff all around. Wow, what happened to the water in the puddles? The sun must have dried it up or something or made it disappear. They didn't know. Maybe a student went back and asked a professor, what happened to the rain, the water that was on the, uh, on the, the walkways and stuff because when we left class, there was puddles there. As we came back, there's no puddles. And the answer that science gave, are you ready for this? The answers that science gave was, it just disappears. It just ceases to exist. Really? Uh, that's what science said for centuries. And you would find this taught at universities and things, and it, it, it's sort of crazy. But this system, this, this cycle, in, um, it, it really wouldn't come into play and be understood until the 19th century. Um, because people were puzzled. Where did the water come from? Why did it rain here? Why, why didn't it rain over there? Why did it rain here? Um, and afterwards, where did the water go? Or the snow on the ground and it melts. Where did it go? It's, and being told by scientists that it just disappears, that it ceases to exist, just didn't make sense to them. Science couldn't figure out where the rain came from or where it went afterwards. Now, as I said, the Bible has clear answers for this, but these are people who weren't looking for the answers in the Bible because, like I said, and I agreed that the Bible's not a science textbook, but as I said, if there's science in here coming from a holy God, it's going to be true. Well, Many believe that the earth, like I say, had an inexhaustible subterranean reservoir under the, the earth that stored all the water. How'd they come up with this? Well, you go out, dig a hole in the ground. You make it deep enough, guess what? A lot of places you find water and you get wells. In Israel, you can go to, um, in ancient Israel, they dug wells everywhere. As a matter of fact, when I lead tours to Israel, we go to certain places, Beersheba, um, you go up uh, into some other cities and stuff. You can actually see the ancient wells where they were and stuff. And you can see the water systems that the, the Hebrew people put together, the Israelites, the Jews, and how they did these. You dig down in the earth, you can get water. So that's where they came up with, wow, there's, there's some type of supply down there that just never seems to run out. Hmm. That's very interesting. But what does the Bible have today have to say about that? And, and, and where did these ideas about the hydroelectric cycle come from, this water cycle? Well, as I just said, the Israelites started getting an idea of this because they had the Word of God. The Greeks, very knowledgeable people, sort of prided themselves on their knowledge, they pretty much knew how the water cycle worked also. But actually, it wouldn't be until about 2,000 years for science to actually formulate it and prove it. Yeah, 2,000 years. Even though the Israelites figured a lot of this out, they all knew it. They were agriculturally based. They understood it. But the rest of the world didn't quite get it. The Greeks had it to a degree, but the Israelites really understood it because of the Word of God. But science sometimes takes a long time to come around and finally admit, you know some this was all in the Bible. We should have just believed that. Now, let me take you through this. This is really interesting how this was done. I've already told you what, the, what science was teaching, which is a little bizarre. But one of the first scientists to formulate the modern hydrologic or water cycle was a guy by the name of Bernard Palissy. Now, 
this guy is really interesting. You, you got to really search to try and find information on him. But he was a very strong Bible-believing Protestant who lived during the time of the Reformation. And during this time, um, he was actually persecuted for his belief. He was a Protestant. And um, a lot of the Roman Catholics at that time in Europe were really upset with him. And they put him in jail and they tortured him and stuff um, because of his biblical beliefs. But he came up... And in some of his writings, it shows that he came up and theorized about the hydrologic cycle. Thing is, he never did experiments to prove it because, well, they stuck him in jail. Uh, so he couldn't have access to stuff. But from the little writings and stuff that exist from what he did put down, it does seem that he had an understanding of this. And again, he was a person who studied the Word of God. And so I can't help but wonder if this is where he picked up a lot of this. Now, the next person to come along to help us with this theory was none other than Leonardo da Vinci, uh, who we already mentioned once before in this lesson. He lived at the same time as Palissy, but, um, and, and as we said already, da Vinci was a Bible believer. He also came up with ideas about the hydrologic cycle or the water cycle. And he did jot down a few conclusions on it that seemed to be based from a biblical perspective uh, because it sort of parallels this. But we don't know because he didn't spend any, any time experimenting on it or spending a lot of time studying it. Um, he was busy doing other things and painting and stuff and, and other type of scientific endeavors as he was working on it. But about the same time, um, a man named um, Pierre Perrault, actually about 100 years after da Vinci, um, Pierre Perrault, he lived in Paris. You can get by that name. Wow. Yes, he's from Paris. And uh, this Frenchman was an amazing guy because he studied the Seine River that flowed through Paris. And he started noticing that it would rain in the countryside into streams. The water would flow into the streams and into creeks and stuff and into other rivers, which would then dump into the main river there. And so he started doing quantitative studies of how much water was coming down in the countryside and how much water was flowing through the city of Paris. And he came up with the idea that the, that the river there in Paris is being fed by all the rainwater and the melting snow. And that's what was doing it. And he came up with a really good idea of this water cycle. He's often credited uh, with the discovery of the water cycle because he actually performed experiments testing his idea there. And he wrote a book called On the Origin of Springs. What a title. Sounds like something from the 1960s in the United States. But anyway, it, he wrote this book and he described what he was studying. So he's sometimes called the father or the discoverer of the water cycle. But there was another person who comes along, William Prout. William Prout, I, I really like this guy. This guy is fascinating. Um, he's a theologian. Um, He's a naturalist also. He's, he's a guy who studied, uh, he was a scientist. He studied biology frequently and, and he had a knowledge of working chemistry and meteorology and, and uh, human anatomy. He had, the guy was brilliant. And he lived in the 1700s to the mid 1800s. And he did a lot of studying. And as I said, this guy's a theologian. He studies the Bible carefully. This is a scientist who dissected scripture. He studied scripture carefully. And so he wrote a book called Chemistry, Meteorology, and the Function of Digestion, considered with references to natural theology. We don't make titles of books like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he wrote all of this, and much of his conclusions on the water cycle came from the Bible. Isn't that cool? 
I bet you didn't know all this stuff. That these guys, these scientists that are working on this, are getting a lot of their information right out of the Bible. Where scientists today are trying to say, and not just, you know, a few scientists are saying, don't trust the Bible. The Bible is full of science errors. Well, really? Look how much science is being proved by the Bible here. So what does the Bible contain concerning this scientific fact about all this? Let me show you now what the Bible says. What were these people finding? What was Prout finding? And, and stuff was, as they were studying scripture to find out about how the water cycle worked. Well, let's take a real quick journey here through scripture. Back around, let's go back to about 700 BC. That's a good time. The prophet Isaiah, in his book, um, chapter 55, verse 10, and I'm going to read this out of the New American Standard Version. It's a word-for-word -word translation to make sure we get this really clear. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. Oh my gosh. That's the water cycle in one verse. Rain and snow, precipitation coming down from where? From the heavens, from the sky, comes down. It comes down to the earth. It's going to make things grow. It's going to make things sprout, et cetera, et cetera. And then what's it do? It says it returns back up into the sky. This is the water cycle in one verse. Isn't it amazing? 700 BC. But as I told you, the Israelites were figuring out a lot of this stuff. Now, there's another one. Let's go back a little bit further in time. Let's go to King Solomon, uh, 950 BC. In the book Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. You see what puzzled people, not just uh, scientists, but it puzzled a lot of people who lived near the ocean, lived near estuaries where rivers and streams would feed into the ocean. You see all this water going into the ocean day after day after day and night after night, but the thing is the shoreline never keeps going up. The ocean stays stable. The water level pretty much is stable. It puzzled people. How can you have all this water from these rivers flowing into the ocean and the ocean is not full? That's what this is talking about. And this gets into the water cycle because we know now that it, uh, the water, just like we saw in the last verse, evaporates, goes back up. It's right there. Uh, let's go to an older book. Let's go to the book of Job. As I said, oldest book in the Bible. We don't know exactly when Job lived, but many theologians believe that he probably lived some, well, somewhere after Noah, but before Abraham. So maybe uh, 2000 BC, 4000 BC. We're not exactly sure. But he writes about the water cycle. The oldest book in the Bible has the water cycle in it. It's Job chapter 36, verses 27 and 28. Listen to this and hold on to your seats because this is absolutely scientific. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Did you catch that? Did you see the word distill even in here? That's a science term, distill. That's changing water, liquid water to a vapor. And it's like, it's in the Bible. I mean, does it get any cooler than that? I love this verse. Look at this. Drops of water are being drawn up. Water vapor, air, uh, going up into the air. It turns into what? It turns into rain. Which then what happens? The skies pour the rain, the water back down on the earth abundantly. This is the water cycle right here. I mean, 
Does it get any clearer than this? And people try and tell me, well, the Bible's full of science errors. Explain that one, because science books had this wrong for so long, yet the Bible's got it correct. Or look at the, we're not done. Look what else Job has. In chapter 26, verse 8, it says, He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. This tells us what clouds were made of. You know that science was puzzled by that for the longest time, too? What exactly are those clouds up there? Why do they look like that? Why do they change colors? It's water, water vapor, and we all know that today. Everybody learns this today. It's right in the Bible, in the oldest book of the Bible, in fact. Oh, let's go back uh, to King David. King David uh, lived around 1000 BC. In Psalm, he writes this beautiful song, Psalm 135, in verse 7, it says this. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Whoa, you know what this is saying? Where is the water kept? In storehouses. There are storehouses. What's the storehouse? Well, he goes on with this. In verse, uh, chapter 33, verse seven, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Here, the Bible is telling us what we know today is scientific fact, bodies of water, like the sea, um, that is the storehouse for the water. And that's where it goes. The sun shines on it, turns it in, and distills it to vapor, it goes up, there you go. Or as Nemo says, all, all streams run to the ocean. That's because it's the storehouse of everything. There it is right in the Bible too. The sea is the storehouse. You know, we're not done yet? No. How about this one? The prophet Amos. Amos lived around 750 BC. He too, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he writes this in Amos chapter 5, verse 8. Who calls for the waters of the sea? There again, we have this whole point. Uh, the sea is the storehouse. But who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth? Here again, you got the water cycle described. Waters of the sea being poured out onto the surface of the earth. You see that the water cycle, the hydrologic cycle, is scientifically covered. This science is so accurately covered in the Bible. I have taught classes on meteorology having to do with the water cycle, totally using the Bible, and then let the students go take the standardized testing and stuff, and they get this because the Bible has this so accurately, and in so many verses, in so many time frames by so many different authors, it's absolutely amazing. And the thing is, they all, like, what I love about the Word of God, it actually all builds upon each other. It's not contradictions. And we see this is all truth. The truth that the Bible is scientifically accurate. How does it get any better than that? Well, we're out of time in this lesson, and I hope you've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed having you with, and I hope you'll come back again because we'll be having another lesson uh, following after this one. Um, and I just, I, I just, I'm so excited, and I'm so glad you're joining us. Uh, until you, we meet again on this uh, this channel, y'all take care. God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. 
You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. You can also send us a message, let us know what you thought about this episode. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at our website as well. This is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.